this is UNS Talks, a podcast from the architecture and design firm UN Studio. For this episode, we are very happy to host Mariana Pastana and Rory Hyde at our office in Amsterdam to discuss their exhibition, The Future Starts Here. This exhibition is open now at the V&A Museum in London and runs until the start of November this year. The exhibition brings together more than 100 objects that could shape the world of tomorrow, guiding visitors to imagine a range of potential future scenarios. Mariana, who is originally an architect, is a teacher as well as curator. She has taught at Central St. Martins, Chelsea College of Arts, Royal College of Art, and the Sandberg Institute. She is also co-founder of a collective called The Decorators, with whom she develops curatorial and research projects. Rory is also originally an architect, and has lived and worked in Holland for many years, working at MVRDV and OMA before moving to London to explore curation. His work focuses on new forms of design practice for the public good and the changing role of the designer today. He is also adjunct senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne and a design advocate for the Mayor of London. In their talk, Mariana and Rory discuss the thinking behind their exhibition as well as the objects within. They cover a broad range of themes and concepts from the home to protest to immortality. Enjoy. Um, perhaps I'll just start by uh, telling you a little bit about the context. Um, this um, exhibition uh, was created at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and this is a, a museum of art and design and performance. Um, that uh, can trace its origins back to the Great Exhibition of 1851. And this was a, um, an exhibition of art and manufacture, um, a moment that is really the inception of, of the V&A that mixed um, uh, machinery with raw materials, food, fireplaces, decorative arts, all in one place. And when we look back at, uh, of course, doing this exhibition at the V&A, for us this inception moment, this radical moment at the, that is the beginning of the institution was super important for us. And we were fascinated by this interdisciplinarity, uh, this mixture of, of, of disciplines. Um, and we um, now when we look back at the great exhibition, we can see through the crossover of all these disciplines and materials and so on, we can see what was then the beginning of an industrial revolution and um, uh, the kind of interdisciplinary exchange that signaled the beginning of a, of a big movement for design. Um, and now we see a similar trend happening in design with a lot of interdisciplinarity taking place at most studios. Um, and we think that that has to do with the emergence of what is now the digital revolution. Um, and so we took a similar approach. We decided to show things coming from a variety of disciplines. And this is what we'll, uh, we'll show you to do today. So we spent three and a half years <laughs> going um, to visit studios, research labs, universities, um, companies, in search of projects that we thought um, uh, were starts or beginnings, that they um, were in production already or had been just released, but they had this potential to maybe change the way that we live. And we see them as, yeah, just beginnings. Maybe we can go uh, and we've assembled them all together in this large room. Um, 
But of course, these beginnings are um, somehow, uh, they have an inclination. Each object that we selected for the exhibition is um, some it, it has an ambivalence to it. It allows us to project many questions. It opens up possibilities that sometimes not even their creators can anticipate. They create them with a vision in mind, but we don't know what the future holds. So um, we start the exhibition with this quote by Paul Virilio, who is an urbanist and philosopher, that says, uh, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. That is, every time a new thing is invented, um, a new accident is born, and that's his perspective. We, um, and so, in, inspired by, the, the, by this sentiment, we placed it right at the beginning of the exhibition to say, all of these things that you're going to see, they open up a series of possibilities. We don't know where they will head. They can be, um, they, have their, they have these two sides to them, each one of the objects. They can um, be very exciting, uh, represent very exciting developments, but they can also open up dangerous possibilities. Um, so uh, just before we, we start showing you projects that, we, and we will, <laughs> just to tell you a little bit about the organization of the show, because as Alice said, we're, we're both architects and for us this was a very important um, uh, part of the exhibition was how to spatialize it, how to bring all of these objects to, to life somehow. Um, uh, and we took them from all these contexts that I mentioned, the design studio, the research lab, and at the moment they live in this isolation, right? In this particular lab, in this particular city. We wanted to see what happened or ask what happens if this project becomes ubiquitous, if it becomes part of our life. And so we, we divided the exhibition into these areas. They're almost like dioramas or big islands in the exhibition space that divided into these, um, yeah, these, these sections, uh, the self, the public, the planet and the afterlife. So here we're interested at these, the different scales um, in which technology and design shapes our life. How, the, how do these developments shape me as an individual in the first section? How do they shape me as a citizen in the second section? How do they shape me as a species or us in this case, right? Uh, and that's, that's the planet section. And then finally, uh, we did a, um, uh, yeah, a section on Im immortality or what we call the afterlife, which we'll tell you about. At this point, we experienced some technical difficulties with Rory's microphone during the live lecture. But, to fill you in briefly, Rory explains that the exhibit is organized by a series of 10 questions. The first of these questions asks, what makes us human? Presented with this question, museum visitors immediately meet a large red robot designed by the University of Berkeley. The Berkeley robot for eliminating tedious tasks. This robot is attempting to do some laundry. And, and for us, it's a, it's a mirror. So it's the thing which is human-scaled, it's, it's, it's human-like. Uh, it's trying to do a very human thing, do laundry, something which we um, can all do somehow without thinking. But we see how difficult it is for a robot in order to do that. Um, so somehow it's, it's a sort of welcome that you might expect from a future show. Here's your robot. Um, but also it's, it says a lot about us. It says a lot about um, our relationship to technology um, today. And we explore that further through um, this project, which is created by the artist Heather Dewey Hagberg. Um, she's developed this process where she can um, generate portraits. So this is a 3D printed um, portrait 
that is created um, from information extracted from DNA. So for instance, her, her first work was to pick up cigarette butts and bits of chewing gum from the street. This is actually a, a, a portrait of Chelsea Manning, so the whistleblower who um, sent a huge amount of uh, military information to WikiLeaks. And uh, she was imprisoned for this, so she was unable to be uh, photographed. Um, and so Heather was commissioned to make this portrait from her uh, hair clippings and from her um, saliva samples. And for us, it speaks about, um, well, first of all, it's amazing that you can uh, do this. Um, uh, and it also points towards a new kind of design. So DNA is now being used as a sort of medium of design, a new kind of um, way of, uh, yeah, it's a new medium, if you like. Uh, also here we talk about uh, the physical body. So uh, this is a um, exosuit. It's created by Seismic, uh, designed by Yves Bahar. And it has electric muscles which are stimulated by your own movements. Uh, it's designed for the elderly. It can extend your um, life, if you like, your independent life. Uh, it gives you an extra boost while you're walking up the stairs or getting out of bed or keeping good posture. I could benefit from it. Um, and it, so again, we're, we're interested in, in where's that line between what's human and what's technological. Uh, and really the, the sort of question that uh, captures this for us is um, that feeling that you have when you leave your phone at home. I mean, for me, it's that uh, mixture of like anxiety and relief. But either way, it's a strong feeling. And it proves that we are, whether or not uh, we have digital technology integrated in our bodies, we are intimately connected to it. And it's something which uh, is, is rewiring our brains. Um, so at this point, we're um, in the space of a home. Uh, we should say that all of these sets were designed by Andres Hake and the Office for Political Innovation. So they're a studio based in Madrid. And they do these very highly narrative um, uh, compositions. Uh, so they created a home for us uh, because we were interested in discussing the space of the home and how it uh, is becoming uh, transformed through um, uh, the presence of technologies that um, through their algorithms learn our preferences, they learn to know us, they know what temperature we like, they know what our face looks like, they recognize the voice of our friends, they know what we like for dinner. <laughs> And, um, and so we wanted to think, what, what does this mean really for the home, this illusion of care that we're outsourcing to all of these objects? So we created a, yeah, a set with many um, smart home devices. Um, one of them is uh, Jibo. So here you're looking at a, a Amazon Echo, um, you're looking at the, a Nest thermostat and you're looking, and you, you probably know these two, so we wanted to have some that are some, somehow familiar. Uh, the one you might not know or have interacted with is Jibo, that one in the back, and that's, um, it's a companion robot um, that can, you know, talk to you, um, it can read stories, um, it's very cute and small, um, and you can pat it. Um, and uh, what's special about Jibo is first that it was created by a roboticist that has 20 years experience in doing robots, uh, Cynthia Brazel. And this is the first robot that she created for the real world. So you can buy it. You can, it can live in your home. And then the second thing that's quite special about it is that it's somehow a little bit disobedient. So whereas Echo will always try to do what you ask her, um, or uh, yeah, Alexa, um, Jibo doesn't really do what you ask it to. So that's very strange. Uh, and it makes him lovable somehow. 
Um, next to Jibo, we're displaying um, Paro, um, and this is a therapeutic robot. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's modeled on a baby seal, um, and so it makes um, cute sounds when you uh, pet it, um, you know, you can stroke it. It doesn't like if you stroke it too hard. And the creators of Paro said that it circumvents the logistical difficulties of a real animal. So um, for us, it opens a number of questions to do, you know, why do we prefer Paro to a uh, pet? And uh, what does it mean for these, it's almost like these cute robots. I mean, there's Paro, there's Jibo, there's Curie, there's Pepper. They all have these short names, they look very cute. It's almost like a new species that is developing and it's invading our homes. And we want to ask what does, you know, what does this mean? And in face of this, are we more connected or are we, um, do we feel more lonely? In, in the in these with this new kind of companionship. The next question we ask is: Does democracy still work? Of course, this is a big question today. With the um, in the UK after the um, uh, the referendum on uh, Brexit uh, in the US after the presidential election of Donald Trump, um, uh, there's been uh, almost a division of society, uh, a very stark division that provoked um, debate, protests, um, and we've also realized that there's a, a decline in, in, in terms of the trust in democracy and trust in the nation state over the next 10 years in Europe and the US. Um, so we were interested here in, in kind of debating um, what, what opportunities does this open up and how does design contribute to these conversations. So we'll show you just a couple of projects. One is the Pussy Power Hat. Um, and uh, many of you might know this was a, a hat that was designed as an open source pattern that anyone could knit. Um, and as a design object, it's a, it's a fascinating, of course, this was created for um, protest after uh, Trump's inauguration. And what you're looking at is a march um, in Washington on that day, the day after the inauguration. Um, but as a design object, the, the Pussy Power Hat has this incredible potential to um, turn you, turn a person into, um, uh, turn us into group, into a group. Everyone needs a pink power hat, um, and what it creates is this image of a sea of pink. Um, and so you're no longer an individual; you become a group through this design object, and therefore you have more power. Um, the next project we'll, we'll show you is, uh, this is an architectural model that we have on display in the exhibition of uh, an actual, uh, a real parliament that has been constructed and which opened um, a few days before the opening of our exhibition in May. It opened in Syria, in northern Syria, in a region called Rojava. And this region has a, an autonomous government that um, is a functioning democracy, but a democracy that doesn't want to be a state. Um, so it's an alternative to democracy as we know it. Uh, the parliament was designed by the self-administration in collaboration with the New World Summit, led by Jonas Stahl, um, who many of you I'm sure will be familiar with because he's, uh, he operates here from, from the Netherlands. Um, and we think this is an incredible model of self-organization and a real alternative to democracies being practiced in the West.
We also, within this big exhibition, we have one section which is looking at architecture, looking at cities. We ask the question, are cities for everyone? Um, and for us, that's really a question about um, power. So who has the possibility to shape the city? Um, where does that uh, empowerment come from? And really, what role can citizens play and what kinds of different stories can we um, tell through the city? So a couple of uh, projects here, we have a driverless car. Of course, again, uh, what exhibition about the future could have could survive without a driverless car. Now it's become the kind of most talked about uh, technology. And again, we, talk, we, we think of this as something almost like a um, uh, you know, thought experiment or a piece of philosophy. Because they don't exist, they're used as this tool for speculation to wonder how will they transform the city? Will um, they reshape the map of rents? Will they allow us to live further out? Will um, if they're all electric, what happens to air pollution and uh, so on? Will we even own them or will they be all fleets? All of these questions can be um, kind of projected through this prism of this technology which doesn't yet really exist. Uh, we worked with Volkswagen um, and the question they're asking is what relationship do you have with that car? So when it's got uh, lots of uh, brains in it and it can recognize your voice and it can recognize your family, much like the smart home devices that Mariana talked about a moment ago. Um, how will you trust the car? What relationship will you have with it? So they created a, um, a kind of interactive video within the car which plays out a series of scenarios. Would you uh, put your kids in the car for, the, for it to take them to school without you in it and with no driver? You know, what, what are those sorts of scenarios which can be tested through a technology like this? Um, and another incredible project uh, which is being uh, built in, right now in Berlin, many of you will have heard of it, it's called the House of One, it's designed by Kuhn Malvetsi, uh, incredible, uplifting, inspiring project which is a, a religious building for three faiths, so it's a mosque, a synagogue and a church in one building, plus a sort of a secular central space for um, those uh, various communities to come together. Uh, is initiated by the religious leaders in Berlin, a city which at the moment um, is facing uh, you know, resistance to Merkel's uh, invitation for refugees to come into Germany. And these tensions between religions are, are becoming um, heightened once again. So uh, the, the, this incredible act to use architecture really to try and address those massive questions, the existential ones about how we all live together and how, how do our views differ, can be somehow explored through a building and put into dialogue in physical space. So um, we're, that for us is sort of uh, speaks about an incredible future for architecture. And uh, a project like this um, that is not commissioned by, the, by a city council, but is a project initiated by the community um, through fundraising or crowdfunding processes is only possible because we live in this new paradigm of the digital world. Um, so um, uh, there's, a, a there's a couple of projects in, in this uh, city section that really that relate to this new condition in which we live. Um, and so we decided to follow with um, a section where we discuss uh, uh, the internet as an, you know, the infrastructure of the internet. We start with this question, um, is Edward Snowden a hero or a traitor, which is of course a provocation, um, but it's a, a question that opens up a certain discussion about the internet as an open or closed system, but more so um, about the, the internet and, 
and power structures. Um, we know that the future of the internet will be determined by those who control the infrastructure in, through which information is circulated. Um, and so uh, we've included a number of um, examples of projects um, by different agents that in a way want to get hold of that power. Uh, one of them is Facebook um, and this is their project Aquila. It's, um, it's part of a, of a larger aim um, that Facebook have to bring internet to the whole world. Um, Mark Zuckerberg fa famously said that uh, to be connected should be a human right. And, um, and so uh, he wants to be the first to deliver internet to the whole world. So they started creating these aircrafts, um, unmanned, um, that you can see here, that uh, are designed, they're solar powered, they can stay, they're designed to stay up in the air up to two months, uh, they have a 40 meter wingspan, we have the whole prototype on view at the VNA, and they beam internet to the ground. Uh, and so we think that this project opens up uh, interesting questions, first to do with infrastructure, what, you know, the space of the atmosphere becoming a space where we build more and more, but also to do with the power of who makes, who owns and who designs the infrastructure for telecommunications. So, um, yeah, we can show the next one. In contrast, we show this very precarious, I mean, um, project, um, but extremely powerful, that is uh, created by Jalila Esaidi. Uh, she's a bio artist, and she found a way to um, use trees as radio antennas. So she places a coil around the tree without harming it, and the tree sept, she thinks, they're not sure, because it's an experiment, but somehow the tree amplifies the radio signal, and this is an amateur radio signal, which means that the tree can receive information, but it can also send it. Um, and so um, one tree connects to another tree and therefore forms what she calls a living network. And she's experimented with this system in Europe, um, between trees, between trees and other antennas. And, uh, and so this is the beginning of a project that could, that looks at nature as infrastructure for communications. And that says that the future of the internet could be something like a World Wide Web of Trees. Uh, so we've looked at the home, we've looked at public, so really uh, democracy, cities, um, networks, how we make decisions together and we then move into the scale of the planet. So this is where we, uh, we tackle the big questions of climate change, of how we understand the planet, um, and of really how we're uh, coming to shape the planet uh, in response to climate change. So we ask the question here, should the planet be a design project? And, and really what that suggests is, um, if we've unintentionally designed the planet through climate change and through pollution and so on, are we ready or are we brave enough to intentionally design the planet? to take responsibility for those changes that we've already made um, and to suck carbon out of the atmosphere, to um, even embrace some of the more radical ideas of geoengineering, uh, such as solar shading, putting special reflective particles into the atmosphere and so on. Um, and we, we, we put this forward as a provocation to say, um, 
yeah, we've, we may have wrecked the planet, but should we keep designing it in order to re uh, you know, reverse that uh, transition? This is a project by uh, Tellart, an um, ex experienced design studio based here in Amsterdam. And uh, it's a sand pit which uh, allows you to design the planet. So you can get your hands in there, push the sand around, um, create different hills, and it will uh, project an image on top which shows either lakes or snowy mountains or um, different landscapes. So it's using uh, artificial intelligence machine learning to kind of pattern match with um, aerial photography to create that uh, landscape. What we think is fun about this is that it's a kind of um, God machine. It, it allows you to act as God, to imagine what it would be like to just create the world with your two hands. But because of its size, and you can get about five or six different visitors around this um, sandpit, you need to be a collaborative God. You need to work with your um, partners there and to shape the world uh, collaboratively. So for us, that's a sort of more um, positive vision of the future, which is not just one single uh, visionary. So from the planet, we then go, we then look outwards from the planet towards the universe, um, to some of the claims that are being made on uh, mining asteroids, living on Mars, uh, you know, what, and what does that mean for us? Uh, we ask this question, if Mars is the answer, then what is the question? And we, and we would like to ask that to Elon Musk. We should tweet him, actually. <laughs> um, you know, why are we going to Mars? What are, the, what are the motives? And really, we're seeing many different motives at play here. Um, space used to be a place of, we thought it was just for science. Um, but actually, we, uh, the origins of space begin in a um, nationalistic battle between Russia and America to uh, get to the moon first. So it's, a, it's as much, it begins as propaganda as much as it begins with science. Um, we now see commercial interests entering into, the, into space territory. So we like to somehow ask this obvious question, <coughs> or this deceptively simple question, what is space for? Um, this is one answer. It's uh, created by an American company called Made in Space. They've created the first 3D printer, uh, 3D, zero gravity 3D printer. So these are um, little tools and objects which have been printed on the International Space Station. So for instance, if you're an astronaut there and you forget a particular um, wrench that you need in order to make a particular repair, you, instead of waiting for the next rocket to come from Earth, you can now uh, print it out, uh, make the repair, and uh, on you go. Uh, and that might seem very modest. Uh, and these tools are very small. They're, you know, they fit in your hand. Um, we're all familiar with 3D printing. But what uh, they're working on next, and this is where this idea of a beginning or of a, of a start becomes really central to what we're talking about, um, is factories in space. So where you don't have gravity, um, you can just <coughs> print a truss infinitely. It just goes off like that. Um, so they're starting to imagine what, would it, what kinds of things could you build in zero gravity if you have 3D printers up uh, orbiting the Earth in space. That's kind of one of those ones that makes my head explode. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, when we were doing this uh, research and talking to so many people invested in designing the future or designing to have an impact in the future, um, we realized that many of them were obsessed with um, immortality. Um, 
and they were obsessed with the immortality of themselves as individual people, um, but also with the, our immortality as a civilization. You know, how can we make sure that we back up our knowledge for the future? Uh, and even our immortality as a species, how can we ensure that in face of climate change and so on, that we humans continue to have a place um, and conditions, biological and cultural conditions to live. So, um, so we decided to make a, um, a section about that and to explore precisely these different scales of immortality, like we've done in, in, in the show. So um, one of the things we, uh, that I one of the ideas of immortality that is present in science fiction since ages ago um, is the idea of cryonics. So the promise that you can preserve, you can freeze your body in the hope that science will develop to a point where you can be reawakened in the future. And surprisingly, um, some of the people we've been talking to have signed up and they are um, signed up to either a company, Alcor, or to a not-for-profit organization, the Cryonics Institute. And the Cryonics Institute was actually the first. It's, um, it's essentially a building in Michigan that has um, liquid nitrogen tanks where they keep people for now. Uh, and we thought, oh my god, but this, this idea of uh, this such, such a futuristic idea but this, the, the mechanics of it seems relatively low-tech. So, so we, we've ordered um, um, a standby kit, which is what you receive if you sign up for cryonics, if you decide to have your body frozen. Um, you purchase this service, of course, and then you receive this kit at home that uh, allows anyone, uh, your, uh, someone from your family or a loved one, a next of kin, to take care of your body and prepare it for freezing. Um, and we find the banality of some of these elements fascinating, right? Um, the most futuristic promise um, of the last, I don't know how even for how long we've been talking about cryonics, but um, then it's so simple in a way. Uh, so we've included this kit. Um, uh, we've uh, included this uh, project. This is a, ha a house um, in uh, New York City, um, and it's a house that um, allows its uh, or it encourages its residents to exercise continuously um, so that their bodies are never at rest, they're always somehow alert, and therefore um, they continue to work and they and therefore you can live longer. Um, and so this is a very architectural proposition uh, for how you can live for more years effectively. And um, next to this we have a pack of longevity pills um, created by Ray Kurzweil, um, who, uh, and, and, and this is the case with the, some of these people working um, with just making us live longer or trying to make us live longer, is that they want to witness this big moment that supposedly is going to happen, which is the singularity, uh, the moment when machines will um, outlive us. And so perhaps we won't be living forever um, as bodies, but somehow um, yeah, our consciousnesses will be uploaded onto computers who will then yeah, continue to live long, long after us. Um, and then we end with this um, uh, library. It's a manual for civilization by the Long Now Foundation. So they're an organization dedicated to making us think more slowly, to think of time in a, in a for example, they have a clock that is no longer divided into seconds and minutes and years, but it's 
centuries and millennia and so on to help to, to make us think about deep time. And they've created this library, which is a, a collection of books that would be needed to restart civilization. Um, and so essentially this is a backup of our culture of our civilization and so we 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 kind of yeah end end this section with this possibility of the end the the end of of our world um uh, one of the things we realized um, in putting together the exhibition is that people are quite anxious about the future now. Uh, they feel like the future is something which is done to them, it's not necessarily something which they have power to shape. Um, it sort of lands on you from these big tech companies who decide what uh, devices we'll be using next uh, and how we'll use them and that our lives are being shaped by these forces um, and we're somehow uh, disempowered uh, to push back. Um, and that's a very different way of thinking about the future from, for instance, the 50s or 60s, where it was the nuclear age, the space age, uh, technology was going to save us. Um, there was a certain optimism, uh, looking forward to this utopia that uh, science and technology could bring us to. Um, and, I, and I think we were somehow attracted to that idea. We, we were um, trying to not tell this very d dark story, which is um, one which you hear a lot about at the moment, particularly around technology, particularly around social media, its impact on our, um, you know, everything from our habits to our politics, uh, to try and tell a more balanced story, to bring things which we can be excited about, but to also be really clear about how we can change the future, how we as citizens can interact and to have agency where we can pull, where we can shape. And, and the kinds of projects which we, we've talked a bit about today are the crowdfunding or the um, citizen-driven uh, ones, even things like uh, Jalita's um, tree antenna, which can stand as an alternative to, the, to Facebook's grand vision of planes flying across the whole of Africa or the whole of India. So we're trying to promote these um, counter projects, these um, little moments of resistance, which might seem quite marginal, um, but which actually contain within them the seed, the starts uh, of um, ideas, alternative ways of relating to technology and of, of shaping the world. So that's really the big message, is to say that the future is up to you, that all of us have uh, agency in shaping it, and that we shouldn't feel uh, disempowered or disheartened by um, the massive technology companies and, and how they shape our world. And so with that in mind, we, we wanted to kind of celebrate people and, to, and a plural future and to ask our visitors in this final scene, um, what kind of, finish this sentence, the future is what? The future is up to you. The future is us, crazy, uh, insignificant, don't know, GP, mine. So, so these are just pulled from Instagram uh, the other day. Uh, and I particularly like this one from this uh, mother who's pr propping her baby up, saying uh, the future is her. So um, thanks so much for coming tonight and for, uh, for um, listening to us and for your interest in the exhibition. Uh, it's on in London now, it's opened and it will run until November. So there's still um, about four months to go. Uh, let us know if you are in London. We're happy to come and say hello. Uh, and please tell your friends. And um, we are going to finish now with one of the films created by Superflux. 
So this is a, a London-based design studio who made a series of uh, contextual films for the exhibition. And their brief really was to bring the outside world in, so to remind us of the context in which these things exist, and more importantly, the urgency and the, uh, the real um, existence which these uh, technologies exist outside of the safe space of the gallery. So we might have the lights off, please. And a series of videos by Superflux can be viewed on umstudio.com by following the link in our podcast description. As a side note, you may have heard Rory discussing Tellart's Terraform table. If you're interested to learn more about Tellart's work, you can listen in to our first ever podcast, where Paul Skinner from Tellart came to our office to discuss the Museum of the Future in Dubai. To sign off, be sure to visit The Future Starts Here at the V&A before the closing date on November 4th. Who knows, we might see you there. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbean, or your preferred podcast provider. A special thanks to Buefar and Deboer for recording this lecture. Until next time.